I'm in tears as I type this. I just woke up from a dream that someone came to the house and shot me quite a few times. I can't even fully breathe yet. I hate being a writer because this is the only way I'll be able to calm down. I'm not crying because the nightmare scared me, no. I'm crying because of the look in my little brother's eyes when he came down the stairs and saw me bleeding to death. That has to be the most depressing Andilis take intro ever. But it isn't though. Well, yeah, look, I know because of what we're going to talk about in a minute, but oh man. Okay, let me just grab something to drink or something. Something, man. Oh. <laughs> my name is Andile Masugo, and this is my spot. And by spot, I mean this is episode seven of an audio journal I started about, say, 18 months ago, maybe more. It's called Andile's Take, uh, a name I confess is starting to feel a little stagey, a little pretentious, but we'll stick with it for now. I haven't put out one of these in nearly a year. I can't say why exactly. Wait, maybe I can, but it's complicated. And, and maybe that's part of what I'm busy trying to work through with all of you lovely people listening. Why? Well, I don't know. Wait, maybe I do. <laughs> I'm probably confusing you right now, and that's because I'm still figuring myself out. And this, this is kind of what it sounds like in my head sometimes. Why is he back? It's been over a year. Who cares? But do you just stick to doing interviews and that tech podcast he hosts? Here we go again. Emotion alert. What's the point, though? Who cares? Who cares? Definitely not the cool, calm, and collected persona I like to think I project in real life and on social media. The thing is, I talk for a living, and I've been feeling like I have no business putting out another Andile's take unless I truly have something to say. And I guess for the most part this past year, I haven't been convinced that I do. But turning 32 has kind of led to a mini reawakening, if you will. It's led me to shake off the funk and figure this all out. The significance of 32, well, not much different to 31 except... It's one year closer to being the oldest I've ever really imagined being in my head. And that's like 35. I don't have a picture for what I'd look like at 60. Don't ask me why. That's just how it is. Anyway, welcome to the ride. This is my take. Even that line is starting to feel a little corny, but uh, we'll keep it for now. Anyway, back to the dude who delivered that intense intro at the top of the episode. His name is PJ. PJ Libia. Uh, We met some months ago while we were both volunteering for a community building project in Soweto. And in between mixing cement, laying bricks and tidying up, we got to talking and I realized that this was a dude who truly had something to say. And I was all about hearing what that was. So here it is. So PJ, tell my people what you were reading and why you wrote it, man. This is um, a blog. Well, it's, it's a piece on my blog. It's called Death. I wrote this one after, as it says in the title, A Dream That I Had. And, you know, we have nightmares occasionally, but, you know, the curse of being a writer, it's not as simple as you just wake up from it and go on with your life. So um, this is from where a piece from my blog itself, um, pjlibia.wordpress.com. And I woke up and I had to write this. This was in my heart that night. Why, why is it a curse? Uh, and why did you have to write it? Emotions. Emotions are almost like our fuel as creatives. And um, when I feel something and something is that close to my heart or something really moved me, I can't help but write it. If It's the same thing with all creatives, or as singers and artists. If something moves them enough, they'll put it into creativity. And with me, this dream had put me in a place where I had to write about it to get it off my spirit, if I can say that. My motivation for actually, you know, getting back on the mic with this podcast was turning 32 and 
you know, all the emotions that came with that. Uh, not quite as dramatic as <laughs> some of the reasons that led you to feel the need to like write this and, and, and need to get it out. So tell me more about that. Um, <laughs> it's not always about, you know, death or anything that dramatic, but it's, I, I guess I understand where you're coming from. I, I, I also, you know, sometimes question if the emotions or the pain that I feel is relevant to everybody else. Is it worth being written about? Because it's such a personal thing. Uh, my blog is a very personal blog and the things that I write about it are often sometimes really superficial in my own eyes. I could write about, you know, how I felt after having coffee without sugar. And I could also write about the fact that, which a lot of my writing one will find is about the loss of my father, which was, you know, one of those incidences in my life where I was never the same after that. I, I, I kind of lost myself in that. The thing is, lots of people lose their fathers. I haven't lost my father, so I can't even pretend to know what that's like. But the people who lose their fathers and then the people who lose their fathers the way you did. And tell me how that loss, that specific loss for you, has led to what you write about in your blog, has influenced how you assert yourself in radio, where you work, and why it's inspired you to write a book about it. Growing up, I wasn't really a talkative or opinionated child. I might have had my views, but I was really quiet. The incident put me in a place where I had to try to figure myself out. I don't know where I'm going or what I'm doing. How it actually happened was that my father was a teacher and he was going to school, you know, on an occasional day, just another day. My, I think it was myself or my little brother who was sick that day. And we decided, you know, we're staying home because when you're young, that's like, that's the, that's the biggest gift ever falling sick. So we stayed home. And I remember the last thing I asked my father was, don't go, stay with us. Those were the last words that I said to him. Don't go, stay with us. And he said, no, I have to go to work. I'll see you later. He left. Hours later, the only thing I remember is door opening, like slamming open, and my mother screaming. And I immediately knew. I think I was 12 at the time. And I just knew something happened to my father. The moment itself changed who I was forever. I'm, I don't even think I'm writing for myself. I think I'm writing for him in that he's no longer here. So it's like letters that I'm continuously writing to him. And that's the book that I'm planning to write. Mom, Dad, I think I'm black. And even in the title, you can hear he's there, even though he's not here. It's it's in absentia, but I'm writing to him and still talking to him. And that's where my writing came from. PJ's dad was murdered in cold blood 16 years ago. But we'll just have to wait and see how much of the strange details surrounding his father's death PJ will share in the book he's writing. And while his dad is in no position to play an active role in his life, it's pretty clear that his influence on PJ is as strong as it ever was. So here's the thing about your pain and the depth and richness of your story. It almost, on some level, deserves to be told. You, you know what I'm saying? Like if there's any story about someone who grew up in Soweto and, and had a dad who was a teacher... Uh, came out of the apartheid era and then had his dad shot in one of the most violent cities in the world statistically. That almost deserves to be told. True, true. I, I didn't come up in a township, you know. I My parents moved out of the township two or three years odd before I was born, you know. The things that sort of stand out for me in terms of struggle and the things that I sort of uh, weave into my story on a regular basis are things like, you know, being called chocolate boy when we lived abroad and, and waking up some days wishing I wasn't black or uh, I'd born, been born into a different family just so I could fit in and and those kind of things. But nothing quite like the dramatic pain, you know I mean? So I don't know, I don't even know what the question is. But I suppose I'm asking you if you would have felt the same desire to express yourself and 
and share and speak out had none of this happened to you, do you think? I, I totally understand what you're saying. I, 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 for me, it was an issue of the fraud, the fraud of relevance that one never feels that their story is relevant enough. One never feels that what they're talking about, the experiences that they went through, it could be anything. It could be, you know, writing about love or heartbreak. And one never always feels that their experience might not be good enough for the general experience because it's always relatively speaking. You you lose a dad because he got shot um, going to work one day. Then somebody comes and says, um, well, his dad got hijacked and they killed him on the side of the road. Then you realize, wait, why am I even writing? Because clearly you have a deeper story. I also, on the other hand, have my... I have days when I don't feel like I should be writing at all. Like I do radio, so I just tell myself, you know, stick to radio. You have a good voice, you and your good English, as they tell me. So I choose to sometimes, sometimes self-consciousness leaves me in a place where I want to just do radio and move on with my life. But my writing comes not from a place of um, privilege, if I can say so. Not because, you know, I did grow up with both parents and we would have been considered middle class. We are considered middle class. And I went to, you know, Model C schools and my English is good and I was doing well in school and my grades were good as well. It, I don't think that makes my writing irrelevant. It might not relate to somebody else who might have been in a different situation. But if I remember the kids, I mean, you and I, we're not too far apart. We've got so much in common. If I write somewhere, somehow you'll connect with what I'm saying. And with your... Uh, broadcasting and what you do with Andy Let's Take, I'll connect somehow. And when you're talking about, you know, the identity issues that you went through, I can connect to that. I know I've gone through a lot of things that make me feel like, stop writing. You know, it's not worth it. People don't even care what you're talking about. But then every time I feel that way, I realize that somebody's thinking exact same thing, even if it's for another writer who's in exactly my same position or somebody who totally does not understand my situation. I write just so that these words can come out of me. I don't want to be burdened by my own words. This is Nigeria's Got Talent, the grand finale. Please welcome your host, Andre Bliss. Thank you very much and welcome to the Andre Blaze Henshaw is one of Africa's leading broadcasting talents. He's probably most famous for his work on radio and hosting primetime extravaganzas like Nigeria's Got Talent on television. But it's his work on the My Africa podcast that got me sensing a sort of kinship with him. He launched the podcast at a time when his career was soaring and the whole podcast scene on the continent wasn't exactly vibing. Even now, podcasts are far from being mainstream commercial platforms. So quite like me, he certainly didn't get into podcasting for the money. Nah, man, this, this dude clearly had other reasons for choosing podcasting as a platform to express himself. So... Podcasts and the things that are going to come from interaction with podcasts, those are the future. They are the one way that we currently have to actually impact each other personally. In a world where we've largely taken our information and entertainment from television screens, which by their simple invention necessitated that make-believe became even bigger than humanly conceivable. In that world... After 50, 60, 70 years, humanity is saturated and it's looking for a way to feel again. So the podcast is that. The podcast is bearing. It's shameless. Its power is in its simplicity. It's in the simple ways that it tells the human story. 
The podcast is to the future what the Encyclopedia Britannica was to the past. <laughs> There's this funny story Andre told me about the earliest memory he has about getting in trouble for something he said, and I could totally relate. The one time I can remember actively as having been probably the earliest indicator that I had that there were times when you should shut up. All right. Um, an aunt was visiting. I was very young. I lived with my grandmother and my father and my younger sisters, my stepsisters and my brothers, my elder brothers. So I was in the middle of all of this. Uh, so I had two elder brothers, two younger sisters, and there was me in the middle. And I say, I say had because that dynamic has long since changed in my family. Right. So my aunt was visiting and I'd seen her. I was maybe seven at this time. And I'd seen her about, it felt like I'd seen her a year earlier, you know? Right. And I felt, well, hang on. If I saw her a year earlier, why the hell does she look so bloated? <laughs> <laughs> I think I know what's coming. <laughs> oh, hang I think on, I hang know on. what's coming. You no, know, right? you don't. It actually gets worse. It gets way worse. Oh, man. So I'm thinking, why does she look bloated? What What the hell is wrong with her? And so I scuttle over and I ask my grandmother, what's wrong with, I think, Auntie Veronica? We used to call her Auntie Vero. Mm. So I'm like, what's wrong with Aunt Vero? And she goes, what do you mean what's wrong with her? I'm like, well, obviously something is wrong with her. She's huge. <laughs> She's not the same. Then... <laughs> Now, think of it as a, a child realizing, oh, I might have committed a faux pas. So I'm thinking to myself, oh, I shouldn't have said that. And I shouldn't have said that because it's very obvious that she might be pregnant. And women don't like to talk about being pregnant when they're pregnant. Okay. And you're aware of this uh, at this age. How old are you now? How the, old are you? Well, I, I grew up I grew up in Cross River State. I grew up in Calabar. Okay. Well, today it's more of a metropolis in transit. You know, it's a, it's a small city on its way to becoming a metropolis. Right. It, it attracts viewers internationally from all over the world in December during the, the, the Calabar Carnival, which is the largest street carnival in Africa. Okay. But before it, it started all this, all of this, all these transitions occurred, which essentially kicked off around 2000, yeah, the year 2000 or 2001 or so. Mm-hmm. Um, before all this happened, it was a very quiet, rustic city that was sort of a civil service state pretty much it didn't have a lot of resources so there wasn't a lot of international exposure yeah it was it was a rather backwater place but it was beautiful in that sense okay and you're you're a kid growing up in this and you're how old in the story yeah so i'm around seven and i've i've spent um pretty much my entire life at this point with my grandmother who is a very she was a very very interesting character right and she believed in um utilizing culture to raise children okay. so i was very well steeped in the ideas of what you could say and what you couldn't say around adults uh, so i knew yeah. instinctively that i'd said too much right and uh, i sought after an avenue to you know pull my hand out of the fire so I, I I realized, oh, crap, she doesn't want anyone to know she's married. Yeah. So I run across, switching gears effortlessly back into being a dumb child. Right. I run across the hall, grab her leg, and I shake her. And she looks down at me, and she's already irritated because she can tell that I'm talking about her weight. <laughs> and I try to whisper at her, but she won't bend down to my level. Yeah. So I say it in the smallest stage whisper I can muster. And I say... Oh, auntie, I'm sorry. I just figured out you're pregnant, right? (laughs) And I say this to the hearing of pretty much everybody else in the room. I was in the doghouse forever for that incident. Oh, damn. (laughs) 
forever. I was, I caught flack from everybody for that incident, man. So yeah, that's probably the earliest I can remember. You and I can both relate to uh, growing up being told things like, are you a yeah, <laughs> definitely, definitely. And that means in Isizule and in Debele, basically, dude, calm down. Like, you're forward, you know, that kind of thing. Do you remember that, like, growing up? Man, and growing up and still to this day, because it's a part of our culture. So anybody older than you will still put you in your place when it comes to issues of opinion. We weren't raised as young black Africans to have opinions. It's not, you actually keep quiet and you are told. And this is this is why it's very interesting that I found at least the three of us in a space where we're now expressing ourselves. Maybe we're trying to break out of those, this, this mold that we've been set in growing up. It's interesting also how uh, the issue of relevance came up in my conversation with, uh, we touched on it earlier. The issue of re- re- relevance came up w- when we were speaking with Andre and what he had to say about how in his life, it just it, he's at the point where it just doesn't matter. I'm not interested in relevance. Dude, you're alive, right? I beg your pardon? And you're breathing. Oh, yeah, yeah. You're alive and you're breathing. Yeah. And every day you drink a cup of water, you breathe a certain quantity of oxygen, you exhale a certain quantity of carbon dioxide, you feed plants, you um, affect the hydration process of the earth, you affect the process of evaporation of liquids, which affects how much rainfall we get. You're, you're relevant. You don't need to have a blog or have a podcast to be relevant. You're relevant already. You're at the point in your career where the bro- that broadcasting thing actually doesn't contribute very much to whether or not you feel you're doing... Uh, or you're doing stuff that's worthwhile with your voice. I love broadcasting. Yeah. I'm passionate about it. I'm fascinated by the metrics of measuring demographics and subclassifications. I'm fascinated by creating content. I love writing. But if we're discussing value... Different conversation almost, actually. Different. My value right now is more in person-to-person relationships as opposed to mass effects. So I have these monologues in my head just constantly running. The things that I'm thinking about, the ideas I've been trying to grapple and come to terms with for the last Lord knows how many years. Um, I don't know if I'm a broadcaster. One just has to Google Andre Blaze Henshaw, right? <laughs> what the heck? Oh, but tell me what you mean by that because I think I have... I have a mirror feeling, but it has to do with television specifically. But I'll t- t- tell me what you what you mean by that. Let me let me come at it from this standpoint, right? So broadcasting first and foremost is a job, right? It's what you do for a living. Yes. But it's a job with certain ethical tenets built into it. Okay. Such as um, the observation of the freedom of information in your pursuit of the acquisition of information, the observation of privacy laws and uh, laws against plagiarizing and moral and ethical obligations as well to the public, the listening public or the viewing public or the reading public, whichever your, your, your surface is. But I spent the first, oh, I don't know. Uh, okay. So nine years since I moved to Lagos, six and a half years in Potaka plus one year of radio. That's, so I feel like Methuselah when I do that. <laughs> you well, added all that. <laughs> It's a lot of time. So there's seven years in one corner and there's, you know, uh, eight years in the other. I spent all that time pursuing my career in broadcasting simply for one reason. Which is? I'm curious. I'm not in broadcasting to say anything. I'm in broadcasting to listen. 
That is that is profound. I'm there to listen. My my take on broadcasting is a lot like so I think in the far future, 50, 60 years, maybe less, given the leapfrog nature of time right now, there will be a, a, an introduction into the, the, the dictionary or the lexis of the creative business or the creative industry or creative living, which will become a thing, just like healthy living, for heaven's sakes, has become a thing. There will be introduced into that lexis words like listeners in place of speakers. Today, you'd call them shrinks, but before then, we called them anthropologists. We're curious about the... I'm curious. Let me not make this a generalization. I'm very curious about the evolutionary nature of humanity. I think that the actions that occur in the small pockets of our consciousness mean much more to us as a race than the grand things which we mortalize in history. Let me see if I understand what you're saying. So in context... Uh, taking American Idol as a as a platform versus, say, the quiet moment where, say, Lauren Hill sat and wrote Zion, you know, and yes. then at, in the at a time when she never even knew it might one day be part of this album, we'd all consider one of the greatest hip hop albums of all time. Take me to that moment. Sit me beside Lauren Hill at the moment where she's about to write Zion. I want to ask her. What are you feeling? What are you thinking? What happened this morning? What happened yesterday? I so get you right now. I get you. I'm not concerned with speaking as much as I am with learning, with understanding. My journey through broadcasting, I have to be very honest, is a very selfish one. It has nothing to do with the listeners or the readers or the viewers. It has everything to do with what I'm curious about. And that's the main reason why I haven't returned to, to paid broadcasting in the aftermath of my exit from it a few years ago. Because I like it as much as I do, but I like being able to make coffee at 4.30 a.m. and have a Skype conversation with someone in a different time zone in my kitchen and ask him, someone I've never met who is world famous for music or art or engineering. And my first question to him is, what's your sex life like? Well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't launch in that direction necessarily, but I get what you know. <laughs> I hear what you're saying, though. I totally get you. Is there any other medium out there that lets us do that, though? There isn't, right? Yes. There isn't. There isn't. Every other medium is owned, it's contained, it's boarded, it's colored. It's timed. You can't do TV because it's timed and it's expensive and it's cost-intensive and all of this stuff. You can't do radio because there's a million and one laws bordering against what you can speak of and what you can't. And you have to keep that running by running ads. And ads mean you essentially, you know, you, you fall into the same business structures as everyone else. I think what I am is a creative anthropologist, for want of a better word. I utilize creativity as my tool to figure out how people tick. So Andre is a quote-unquote creative anthropologist. That's posh. What am I? Broadcaster? Creative strategist? Writer? Voiceover artist? Producer? Storyteller? If I'm completely honest, I think I'm desperate to prove that I'm not just one thing. Principally, though, I draw my sense of relevance and purpose from the biblical worldview, which holds that I'm here by God's grace, to live an abundant life in God's glory. And typically, I only experience bouts of insecurity when I lose sight of that. But sometimes it's just so freaking important to me that I be understood, respected, well-known, and do whatever it takes to be undeniable. Basically, I guess that means that whenever there are conversations about the world's best broadcasters, entrepreneurs, writers, and storytellers, I, I'd want to be named among those people. And it's funny how often that all comes down to just wanting to make my daddy proud. Strange, right? Now, it's interesting how much time, how much 
anxious energy I've expended in my adult life uh, living up to either what I the idea of what I thought my dad wanted me to become or some of the things he's actually expressed he would you know he wishes I'd, I'd become and yeah and how it actually took me probably from the age of about 30 and getting married because so yeah because I got married about two years ago so yeah it took me getting married and, and being a man of my own home to actually have such a, a a much more fulfilling relationship with my father and even not hate the idea of how I was becoming like him I wow <laughs> when you say that it's for me I I don't even think I'm in that place yet I haven't I till this day 28 years old have no idea who I am because of my relation to my father because of how I feel about him and how much I really at the stage after like at this about I think 16 years or something I cannot remember what he was like so I don't know if I'm being like him or just trying to be like him while being him in essence I have no idea it's so confusing that's the one thing that on both of you I feel um, burdened to make good on the advantage I have over both you and Andre in that my father's still here um, he's available for me to learn from and draw from and, and to appreciate and I need to do that while he's still here and yeah boys and their fathers for Andre even when he speaks there's no escaping his late father's influence my father taught English he, his life ended as a teacher in a secondary school he was the vice principal of Hope Waddle Training Institution his name was Patrick Henshaw it wasn't a very great way to end the life of a man who once upon a time had been the chairman of the Manufacturers Association of Nigeria while he was in his 30s it was a, a long way to fall my father spoke the queen's english and i'm this, that's the only way to put it he spoke the queen's english you didn't make grammatical errors in our household you never did and for a man who was of ethic origins my father spoke accentless english and the ethic language itself and several other languages in nigeria have a tendency to affect the way that you speak english because it teaches you to inflect naturally in certain parts of speech and not in others. So it's a very easily distinguishable accent. And my father didn't have a trace of it. I, on the other hand, I did. So when I changed parents and I, I, I went to my mother and we moved to Port Harcourt, a more urban city, I was an outcast. I was the kid who spoke like he was from the boonies or the hicks and who wasn't... <laughs> who So... I essentially Shame. didn't get listened to, not because I didn't have something to say as much as because I didn't say it in the way that they wanted me to say it. And one of the things I remember thinking while we lived in Rumubiakani in Port Harcourt was, if I sounded like my father, these people would never laugh at me. Sure. And I think there began after that a slow elimination of the inflections that my own language had given me, which came with set really bad after effects. As, as a result of that exercise, I actually, for a period of over 20 years, lost the ability to speak that language. But I started to tailor the, the way that I spoke to sound more and more like my father. And I didn't realize that this was happening as rapidly as it, it was. But when I did realize it, what I sought to do was to pull myself as far left away from that as possible. And consequently, I wound up sounding American. 
So it wasn't until fairly recently, I'd say maybe five years ago that I said, you know what? If I sound like my father, I sound like my father. And when he passed away, we weren't on good terms. We weren't great. So Sorry to hear there it. was a lot of coping to go with that. And I was trying as much as possible to avoid that. But eventually I thought, you know, I sound like my dad. I sound like my dad. I look like him as well. And, you know, that's why I'm growing my beard and everything, which is growing really badly, <laughs> my dad. <laughs> it doesn't look so bad from here, but... But I know, I know everyone wants to be Rick Ross these days. And it's like, not, it's not for everybody. I don't even want the Rick Ross beard. I just want the left part to just join up. Like, what catch up, bro. space in between? <laughs> catch up, man. I want to thank PJ Livia and Andre Blaze Henshaw for hopping on this joint and sharing their stories with me. Uh, you can check out PJ's blog at pjlivia.wordpress.com and do listen to Andre's My Africa podcast on iTunes. And there's lots of other interesting stuff I spoke to both PJ and Andre about that obviously didn't make it onto this episode. So you should definitely look out for the uncut audio from my chats with them. I plan to share them with you guys really soon. Uh, so where to from here? Well, the plan is to put out a new episode of Andile's Take at least every fortnight. Let's see how that goes. Um, yeah, hang with me. Uh, in the meantime, I'm going back to wrapping my mind around being 32. And I'm going to leave you with the words of the great Muhammad Ali. Don't count the days. Make them days count. Peace out.